right, well, good morning and greetings to you all. Uh, welcome to our Sunday service at Renewal. My name is Dan, uh, one of the pastors here on staff. I'll be uh, preaching the word for us uh, today. And I just want to thank you all for uh, joining us, uh, even with uh, all that's been on our minds lately and uh, what this service has uh, focused on so far. We do, we do hope that you're pressing on, uh, doing well. Uh, with this spring season uh, officially upon us now, finally, uh, Lord willing, uh, along with all the pain in this world, uh, that there's also a lot to hope for, uh, a lot to look forward to, which is what Lent and Easter season uh, are all about. So uh, yeah, for those of you gathered here this morning, and for those of you tuning in from home and or watching this video on your own time, may the Lord speak to you, uh, make the gospel sweet and clear uh, through this word today, uh, and may all of your hearts find good rest uh, on this Lord's day. Uh, I'll do the scripture reading for us, if you could turn with me uh, to the book of Mark, uh, chapter 14, uh, verses 53 through 72. Mark 14, uh, verses 53 to 72. This is God's word. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I ask you now to speak to us through your word, uh, bring conviction and guidance of your spirit. 
We don't want to be swept away uh, by our feelings or the winds of this world, by our truth. Uh, Make clear to us uh, the redeeming grace and love of our Lord Jesus and let that fuel our worship, our obedience, our perseverance, and our call to be a, a witness and a light to this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're deep into the narrative uh, here in the Gospel of Mark, and now coming to the end of chapter uh, 14, with all these events uh, taking place on the night before Jesus died into the early hours uh, of the morning. Things are already very tense. Uh, All the events of Jesus' eventual death, they're set in motion, and it's here that we start seeing some very bizarre behavior taking place here. I, was, I read this passage a lot this week, and I am just kept thinking, what is wrong with these people in this scene here? People are losing their minds. Uh, but in the midst of it all, we see the central figure, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's calm, he's collected, and this entire time, he's in full control of all that's taking place. So everything that we go through here, every detail, will be centered on Jesus, our Savior and Lord, today. So there's a lot to cover here in this passage, so we'll just break it down one section at a time. Uh, Part one here is Jesus tried. Part two is Jesus denied. And part three is Jesus glorified uh, by, by his redeeming grace here. All right, so first we'll look at the trial. In last week's uh, passage, after Judas handed Jesus over to the chief priests, the elders, and scribes, and note this is all, again, happening in the early hours of the morning. He was brought before both the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman authorities for a series of trials. And when you put all these gospel accounts together, there are a total of six trials that Jesus faced. The first three were the religious trials uh, by the Jews, and the second three were the civil trials uh, in front of the Romans, that's Pilate and Herod, uh, which we'll hear about next week. This first trial uh, was a quick one recorded uh, only by John before a priest named Annas, who briefly interrogated Jesus about his teaching, uh, didn't get what he wanted, and afterwards he had Jesus bound and sent to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, uh, who was the actual high priest that year. And this second trial is actually what we see in today's passage, uh, because Mark most likely recorded it because that's where the most significant drama uh, took place. Uh, It's by far the craziest one. And as significant as it was when you read about it, and when you read it carefully, uh, it's, it's quick, it's short, it's goofy, it's rushed, uh, clearly rigged against Jesus, the accused, and a complete mockery of what a just trial is supposed to look like and accomplish. It's everything you don't do. I have a friend who went to law school. He told me in class they watch like movies of court scenes and what not to do and what to do, and this is clearly what you don't do. A commentator wrote uh, that this trial, deliberated by Caiaphas, was a total miscarriage of justice that involved Jewish envy, political pandering, evil, and pure cowardice. And so there they all are in that courtyard. Right? And just to make a quick note here, Peter, he's already there, and we'll come back to him in a bit. Uh, and in verse 55, we start reading about the way they were going about this. Right? The chief priests and council, all of whom clearly hated Jesus and started this already wanting him dead. They were looking for testimony and evidence, and as Matthew notes, they were willing to settle for even false testimony, which many brought up in that scene. Now, just to show you how goofy things were, In these Jewish proceedings, 
the outcome of a court case or a verdict, it was not determined by a fair jury. All you needed was the testimony of two witnesses, and as long as those testimonies agreed on what happened, that was the entire prosecution, and that will be enough for a guilty verdict. But in verse 56, Mark tells us that not only were they committing perjury with these lies, none of these testimonies agreed with each other, right? I mean, these fools wanted Jesus dead so bad. They couldn't even come up with a plan to meet beforehand and try to come up with stories that would agree with each other. There was no strategy. And there they were, shouting whatever they wanted, talking over each other, interrupting each other. It's kind of like a Zoom meeting, right, where everyone's just kind of in a free-for-all trying to get their uh, own words out. And then it gets a little more serious in verses 57 and 58 where Mark says a group of them brought another specific false accusation that they heard Jesus say that he would destroy the temple and one day build a new one in three days, which is only half true because Jesus did say he would uh, rebuild the temple, but he was referring to his body, that he wasn't going to demolish the physical temple. And we read in verse 59 that even those testimonies didn't agree with each other. I mean, what is going on here? And so Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, he can't take it anymore. He's frustrated. And he also, being clearly determined to find Jesus guilty, he decides to question Jesus himself. And he asks him straight up in verses 16 and 61, Have you no answer to make? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He's asking this. He's trying to catch him in some sort of blasphemy. And here is where we get to the climax of the trial. And if you love courtroom scenes as much as I do, this is where it reaches its tensest moment, where the defendant finally gets to speak. They take the witness stand, and in these scenes you see the prosecutor, the defense attorney, they're, they're nervous, they're taking a deep breath, they've saved their best questions for now, the camera zooms in, and uh, this is where we're at. Jesus, uh, perhaps quiet this whole time, uh, looking down, finally, finally looks up, uh, and if you remember the scene from Passion of the Christ, he's just, his face is puffy after um, being beaten, and he looks Caiaphas straight in the eyes. And in verse 62, he answers him. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Not only does Jesus directly answer Caiaphas's question, are you the Christ? But he adds these words about coming on the clouds of heaven, words that would make no mistake to all the Jews there who were all well acquainted with the OT prophecies that he is claiming to be the Messiah. And that was enough for Caiaphas. And as soon as he hears that, he calls it blasphemy. And he's getting heated, so heated that he channels his inner Hulk Hogan. He tears his garments. He's ripping his clothes, which in seriousness was a sign of sorrow and indignation. And he goes forward in that way. And not once does he or anyone else stop to think, wait a second, what if Jesus is right? What if his claims are true and he really is the son of God? But that doesn't happen. Caiaphas does not give him that chance. There was only one way for this to end. He immediately asked the accusers around to give the verdict. And in verse 64, with one voice, they all proclaim that Jesus be condemned to death, which also doesn't make sense because the verdict was reached before the charge was even clear. But there they go. 
Caiaphas gets what he wants. And, you know, these days when someone's declared guilty, they usually get escorted by security back to their cell and they're safe, but not Jesus. As soon as this trial ends, there's nobody there to protect him. And what we read there is the mob, they rush in, and they begin to spit on him, physically attacking him, taunting and mocking him. He's being publicly humiliated. And that's how everything ends. Now let's take a step back. Why did Jesus, the most perfect, the most just, the most pure being that ever lived, the one who created and gave life to all these people there who were accusing and slandering him, why did he just put himself through all of this? It just all seems so unnecessary, right? It was so brutal, so unfair. Well, he did this so that we, his beloved, we who all deserve death because of our many sins, so that we would never have to be condemned by the false accusations of Satan, the one who constantly accuses us, tells us we're worthless, that we can't know God, that we're nothing but uh, wicked sinners. He just wants to send us to hell and make us feel bad about ourselves, make us feel guilty. And where Jesus in this trial had nobody to stick up for him. This Jesus who went through this is for us every day of our lives, our advocate, interceding for us. By his death on that cruel cross, we can be forgiven and free. As we just heard and uh, as we all endured this very, very painful week, remembering how dark and messed up this world is, with the shootings, along with all that we had to endure in 2020, all the racial injustices that were exposed. And while we collectively grieve uh, the wrongful deaths of those eight individuals, collectively we're all crying out for things to be right. It's part of who we are uh, to yearn for, long for, and cry out for fair treatment and justice. And maybe this was your experience growing up, of wanting to be treated fairly, regardless of what we look like, what our last name sounded like, what our home lives were like. And it was never fair if we were treated differently, you know, if our abilities were questioned. You know. And the painful question in our minds was always, when we're treated this way, who's going to stick up for us when we can't stick up for ourselves? And here in this scene, we see a God in the person of Jesus who just went through the worst trial ever. He knows what unfair treatment truly feels like. He was completely innocent. He didn't deserve any of this scorn and derision that was aimed at him. But somewhere in God's infinite wisdom and knowledge, this was necessary. And for anyone who has ever felt like they had no voice, no ability to help themselves, if you've ever felt invisible because nobody will speak on your behalf, this Jesus is reaching out to all of you today in love. Whether you were bullied by a family member growing up with constant put-downs and abuse or left out of social circles because you look different or you had to work extra hard to succeed or to prove yourself. Friends, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, knows exactly what that feels like. He understands. And if you ever doubt that, just read this chapter. Read this section. Read it and be reminded that Jesus, too, he wasn't even treated like he was a human being here. Read about the God of creation stooping so low that he would be smacked around by these disgruntled people. 
And remember what he claimed, that he is the son of man who is seated at the right hand of God, who will come one day with the clouds of heaven. And this God who ascended and who will return one day, he is present with you and me so that we can stand firm and not be shaken. He will remind us that real justice is in his hands, that he will bring about perfectly when he reveals himself to all the world. So friends, if you're weary this week, if you feel broken, we can look at this and take heart. This is a revelation of the God that we worship and we claim to know. We don't have to hide behind our own arguments. We don't have to assert ourselves and push so hard and be slaves to our own frustration. We can trust in God and remember all this during this Lent season. So go to God in prayer as often as you can in your brokenness and let's all with one heart let him lift us up. Now let's look at the denial. You know, as all this is going on, um, Peter, he's been hanging out in the courtyard. And it's interesting to note that verses 66 through 72 uh, is actually a flashback uh, to what happened concurrently with uh, Jesus' trial. Uh, And so I think the purpose of this uh, is to put side by side uh, these uh, pericopes, uh, the interrogation of Jesus uh, right next to the interrogation of Peter. Uh, and to show the differences in how they contrasted with each other. How one of them uh, was being selfless, enduring scorn to save others. The other was being selfish, avoiding scorn to save himself. And as Jesus was being beaten and, and they were yelling about him to prophesy, what he had prophesied about Peter way back in verse 30 was being fulfilled that before, the Jesus, before rooster crows twice, he would deny three times he ever knew him. So let's walk through this here. All right, Peter's keeping himself warm by a fire. Uh, and just take a moment to place yourself in Peter's shoes. We heard a little bit about him uh, this last week, about what kind of man he was. He was very passionate. Uh, we remember he went through so many ups and downs, how rash he was. And no one would question that Peter really did love Jesus and wanted to be faithful to him to the end. On one occasion, he said, Lord, I'll follow you to the grave. And if, even if everyone else falls away, I, I will never fall away. He also was the one when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter was the one who boldly declared, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, you are the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Some, some great moments that Peter went through, but so many times, his emotions got the better of him. You know, he rebuked Jesus for dying on the cross, and Jesus called him the devil. Get thee behind me. And last week, we saw in a moment of uncontrolled violence, he, he was the one who drew the sword and sliced off the ear of the servant of the high priest, and Jesus had to rebuke him again. Put the sword away. I don't need your help. I have more than 12 legions of angels at my disposal that I can call on. And not to mention just a few hours earlier, he couldn't stay awake this, uh, while Jesus asked him to watch and pray. And so it's been very emotionally draining for Peter, to say the least. One minute he's a rock, the next minute he's Satan. He wasn't feeling particularly great about himself right there as he's waiting for Jesus' trial to come to an end. And not only that, just the human fears he must have felt at that moment. You know, you know probably things like, you know, I really love Jesus, but I'm worried something bad's going to happen to him. And if that happens... I don't want to be in the mix. My safety is too precious. Maybe it's best uh, for me to play it safe. 
And who knows, maybe Peter wasn't feeling that. Maybe it was just a gut reaction to being accused that he would deny Jesus. But it's so true, right, that once you go down that path, once you deny something or lie about something, you know, as much as it grates against your conscience to do that the first time, it's so much easier to do it the second time, right, and the third time, and every time the temptation comes. And so the first time probably just caught him off guard. Mark tells us in verse 66, it was just one of the servant girls, someone who would pose very little threat to Peter, came up and said, hey, you were with the Nazarene Jesus. And we see that he reacts quickly, promptly denying it, saying, hey, sorry, I neither know nor understand what you mean, and just completely dismisses her. And it's here that we hear the, the rooster crow for the first time. In the next verse, that same servant girl sees Peter again. And this time, she doesn't say it directly to him. Uh, she says it to the group around them, the bystanders. And he says, this man is one of them. Now, it's getting a little bit serious here, these accusations. Because here, she isn't just accusing him of knowing Jesus, but that he's part of a, that following now, that movement, right, where they had this reputation of stirring up trouble, and they were on the brink of getting in a lot of trouble. And so again, he denies it. As we look at this, we see that, you know, for Peter, denying this really didn't do anything for him. They didn't go away. It didn't buy him anything, any time or anything. They didn't look at him and say, oh, you're right, we're sorry, right? You're not, you're not one of them, so let's just leave you alone. They got more suspicious. They probably noticed that he was getting more comfortable. He's just a bad liar, right? Some of you have probably kids that are bad liars, right? They have cream all over their face. Uh, I didn't need it. <laughs> or if you ever play mafia, you know, you have uh, those people that who, they always lose because they can't lie right, you know? Um, and that's probably a good thing, you know, if you're a bad liar, if you're a good liar, you're always fooling people. Uh, it's probably not a good thing. Uh, um, but, you know, people who are bad liars, they're not very uh, comfortable doing that. And no doubt Peter knew what he was doing here. He did, it, he did it anyway. And the bystanders certainly noticed. And they just kept going after him. And so in verse 70, now it's the entire group that's saying it. Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And now Peter's pushed into a corner here. He has nowhere to go. He panics. And we see here that he loses it. It's his third and final denial. It's vehement. It's passionate. Uglier than before. Fear and anger converging together. And in verse 71, it says he began to invoke a curse on himself. I do not know this man of whom you speak. But literally what he's saying there is, may God bring these curses that I'm uttering on, my, on me if what you're saying is true, if I really do know Jesus. I mean, he's lost his mind. It's a, it's a moment of insanity because he knows Jesus. He's been with him. He was a faithful follower. He was passionate for him. He told him he would die with him. He's just not thinking straight here. And what do you mean you want to be cursed if that's not true? And doesn't this happen to so many of us uh, in our sin? This is what uh, Dr. Keller calls the claustrophobic nature of sin. We're deep into it. Uh, it causes us to shut everything out, including common sense, because in those moments we're focused on one thing, and that's to preserve ourselves, right? Gratify ourselves. You can lose all ability to think clearly. You care nothing for the consequences. We'll do things. We'll say things. And when it's over, we're just left wondering, how did that just happen? What have I done? How am I capable of doing such things? 
And right at that moment, just as Jesus prophesied, the rooster crows for the second time. And it's like a light bulb comes on. Peter immediately comes back to his normal mental state. He remembers Jesus' words clearly, and there he is filled, overcome with sorrow and remorse. Gospel writer Luke, in his account, includes this other detail that at that moment, as soon as he denied him for the third time, says Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Their eyes connected. And how horrible must that have felt? And so from there, Peter runs out of the courtyard. He wept bitterly, just like any of us who have ever regretted our actions or words. He just couldn't believe that after all that he had experienced, after all the bold declarations he made, that he was still capable of turning his back on Jesus in this way. So friends, this is where we remember that when it comes to following Jesus, there's a lot we need to examine about our own hearts and how we approach him. Following Jesus is so much more than talk, so much more than what we say. Yes, we must confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. We have to make a public profession uh, in front of the church. Yes, we must speak of what Christ has done for us, how we've changed, and our ongoing testimonies are so important. But just saying bold words, just claiming to be strong, that doesn't mean you're always going to be faithful. It's about your life. And we tend to just forget the real meaning behind them. But it's got to enter our hearts, be part of our experience. We need to hold fast to them, really believe that even in the most difficult moments of our lives, when push comes to shove, when we feel helpless, we feel like we're at the end of our rope, that what we say we believe is true, that these words hold power, and we stand on them when there's nothing else to trust in, when we come to the end of ourselves. And this is not easy. This is not easy. And church, my burden for us as a congregation that we would continue to go so much deeper than just just understanding theology and getting all the answers in Bible study right, but to really love God, love Jesus. This is why discipleship is important. This is why a personal relationship with Jesus is important. This is why Bible study, memorization, prayer, practicing, things like this, these are all beneficial for us. Because as we draw near to God, the promise is he draws near to us. And so we can look at our hearts right now at this moment and understand that, you know, we're not far off from Peter. uh, Given the circumstances he was in and given that uh, we can find ourselves in those very circumstances where we're being tested. What ways do we deny Jesus in our lives? Are you ashamed to speak up for him and your scriptural beliefs? Do your neighbors and coworkers know about your church life? Are you a different person when Christians aren't, aren't around? And if so, what is missing in your spiritual life? What does your heart pay allegiance to? At the end of the day for Peter, even though he said he would lay down his life for Jesus, his heart was still ruled by something else. And just like we, uh, Judas last week, he was gripped with worldliness. He still wanted Jesus to be this physically strong savior who would force their enemies into submission. He still hadn't fully accepted that Jesus was supposed to suffer and die like a weakling and that his disciples would be called to do the same. You know, Jesus repeatedly had said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and my sake will truly save it. 
But as Peter was wrestling with that, as he was, he was denying Jesus, he was trying to preserve his life by minimizing that danger, failing to remember that when it comes to following Christ, when it comes to being his committed disciple, we don't get to pick and choose which aspects of Christianity are more appealing. We get to live out. Of course, it's not all bad. There are wonderful aspects of Christianity that we uphold. We're free from sin and guilt. We have wonderful fellowship with one another. There's eternal hope and a place in heaven one day. The joys of singing worship songs together. But there are also painful aspects that we can't avoid that the Bible tells us to expect. Suffering and persecution being the main ones that we read about. If we follow Christ... We know that we will be hated by the world, just as we remember. Uh, good cre- Christianity is looked upon by the world with hatred. For Peter, uh, being, admitting that he was one of them, part of the following, he was going to be inviting humiliation at best, but physical danger at worst, and he wanted nothing to do with either. And we need to look at ourselves now. How secure are we in the gospel and in our relationship with Christ that we can protect ourselves from our hearts going down a path like that. But there is hope for all of us, uh, as perhaps this is a, a common struggle for that we're all going to face if, we have, if we're not facing it right now. That Thank God that though this chapter ends on a very sad note, in verse 72, Peter is broken down and weeping. Uh, this isn't the end of the story, and uh, this isn't the end of the sermon. So now let's look at Jesus being glorified in his... Uh, redeeming love and mercy. And for this, we'll just hop on over real quick to John 21. You don't have to turn to it for time's sake. I'll just tell you what happened in the scene where Jesus, he approaches Peter uh, after the fallout of his denials. And we could find such great hope uh, in this when, if we feel like we fail God. This is several days after Jesus resurrected, taking place on, on the seashore after uh, the disciples had been fishing for the night. They're having breakfast by the fire. A lot of eerily similar circumstances to the night. Um, Peter actually denied Jesus. And I think that was very intentional uh, because Jesus was very, very well aware of how Peter was feeling at this moment. You know, for days now, he's probably living with the guilt of what he had done. He's probably wondering, is my relationship with Jesus ever going to be the same again? Have I disqualified myself from being part of his mission? So Jesus, knowing all things and loving Peter, he approaches him and asks him the same question three times. Peter, do you love me more than these? You who boasted that even if all will fall away, you will never fall away. In this moment, do you truly love me more than these? And each time, with sincerity and earnestness in his heart, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Very simple. He doesn't say, yes, Lord, I love you more than them. Or, I love you so much, I'll die for you. He, he's no longer making these grand, bold declarations. His devotion is directed at Jesus now because of what he, what he experienced. Lord, you know I love you. And in case you've never known this, for each denial that came from Peter's mouth, three in total, which is essentially communicated that night, I don't love you. Jesus, in order to secure his forgiveness, led Peter to say three times, you know that I love you. But Jesus didn't stop there. With each of these three confessions of Peter's love, Jesus says to him, Now feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. 
He takes it to a whole new level here. It's not just a restoration. It's a reinstatement. Yes, he can still be part of Jesus' mission, not because he's able to clean up his act and never do these bad things again, but because of the mercy of Jesus. His redeeming, saving grace that he was able to perfectly give away, freely give away because of his death on the cross. One pastor once said, Jesus forgave Peter by giving him a second chance in the very area where he failed. And that's the gospel. That's great news, amazing news. You know, getting a second chance right, is amazing. Being restored is amazing. There's a story. Uh, Thomas Edison, who invented the light bulb, uh, when he was making the first light bulb, it took a whole team of men working for 24 straight hours to put that one light bulb together. And so the story goes that when they were done, uh, they were ready to test it out. They needed to carry it upstairs. He gave it to a young boy. He said, take this upstairs. So this young boy carefully brought it up the stairs, very nervous about dropping this priceless piece of work. And you can probably guess what happened. As he reached the top of the stairs, the poor boy dropped the light bulb and it shattered. It took the team of men another 24 hours to make a second light bulb. Finally tired and ready for a break and ready to test it out, Edison was ready to have the bulb carried upstairs. He says to the same young boy, be careful this time. Right? How many of you would have given it to that kid again? Um, but how powerful, right? A new lease on life. Second chance. God restoring us in the gospel. Or yes, we may have to live with the consequences of our sin, but he has the power to redeem all of us, erase our past, and give us a hope and a future. If you're not a Christian tuning in or listening to this, or you're a struggling Christian or a new Christian uh, listening to this today, maybe there's, you're here today and uh, you just still feel so stuck you know, whether it's a failure from a past or something you continue to repeatedly do that you've allowed to define you for some time and it haunts you, it cripples you. When you try to get close to God and go deeper and get to know him better, the trauma of those failures, uh, it just freezes you and you feel just unable uh, to draw near to him. Uh, that's the nature of sin, uh, what it does to us. Uh, but friends, we're all together here in the same boat helpless without the saving mercies of our Lord Jesus. And this Jesus who subjected himself to what we read, a laughable trial, who was denied by his closest friends and followers within a span of just a couple of hours here, he went through the worst things. He went from there to an even worse situation all the way to a cross where he was mocked on a larger scale and abandoned completely. Not only did the rest of the disciples flee and run away, not only did Peter deny him, but on that cross, he was utterly forsaken. The heavenly father turned away and abandoned his precious son, leaving him all by himself, bearing his wrath and all the sins of the world. And all this, you know, Mark 14 is just a setup. We'll get to these other events in the coming weeks leading to Easter. But all this to show us that apart from Christ's salvation, and we're all like Peter at that very, very low moment. But Jesus, and only Jesus, has the power to restore 
encourage, reinstate us. And anytime we feel lost and helpless and broken, when we feel mistreated, we feel like things aren't right, anytime we feel like we fail God miserably, just like the lyric of the song that we sang uh, before, there is a hill called Calvary where the cross is the true emblem of our salvation. And it's there where we can know his restoring love. Anywhere else when we're apart from God trying to figure things out on our own, we'll only get more confused, more frustrated. We'll try to talk ourselves into feeling better. We'll try to reason on our own to think that if we try this, things will get better. If we try to fix ourselves, maybe tomorrow will be a better day. I encourage you to stop doing that. Come to the cross of Jesus Christ where his love is poured over you. You don't have to hide behind some accomplishment, hide behind some false sense of security, which always crumbles and fails. You look to the one who will never, ever leave you or fail you. He resurrected to show us that he's alive, that he reigns supremely as Lord of all creation. He wants to give you all a fresh and living hope today. So come with your brokenness. Come with your frustrations and pain. Lay it at the foot of the cross in exchange for the crown of his salvation that he places over you in love. Friends, we're called to call on God daily and cry out to him and that our hearts will be ruled by him alone. And we just turn away from this world Because if we follow this world and all of its fleeting glamour, we're going to be living on borrowed time because everything will eventually fade and fail. But if we deny ourselves and follow Christ, the time we're living on isn't borrowed, but it's truly redeemed for all of eternity. Christ is our advocate who sticks up for us when we feel like we have no voice and we can't stick up for ourselves. And he is our faithful redeemer who restores and reinstates us when we feel like we're at our lowest moment and we feel worthless. And he's reaching out to all of you in love today. Would you open your heart and respond? Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? And I'll give you a few moments, uh, if you're here today or whether you're at home, let's just for a quiet moment, uh, look to our Lord Jesus. Um, Today, just felt really compelled to uh, offer these words to you, uh, just the pure gospel to, to any of you who are just broken and weary with pain and frustration whether it's just the surrounding circumstances in the world or your own failure, would you come before your Savior who wants to heal you, to restore you, to remind you of his power, his restoring grace, who wants to lift you up from the ashes of all the darkness that you might find yourself swimming in. He wants to reach down with his mighty hand and lift you up. So come to him. Come to him no matter who you are, what you've done, whether you've been coming to church for many weeks your entire life or uh, you feel so far from God whether you feel so unworthy uh, you feel like you can't show your face with all the ways you feel like you fail God during the pandemic and feeling like you've been so unfaithful lift your eyes to Jesus who on that cross showed you everything that he went through this ridiculous trial he endured and all the beating and mocking and being denied by and enduring the pain of being denied by one of his closest followers just so you can be assured that because of the gospel he stands next to you and he'll never leave 
open your heart to him in faith and let's trust him. Jesus, we place ourselves into your hands this day, on this Lord's Day, uh, in this ongoing world of, of pain, violence, injustice, endless temptations. Uh, Lord, it's not an easy place to really shine your light and even to know you in a personal, real way. But God, we thank you that in times where we look to your word, Lord, it's unmistakable, God, the love you have for us. the grace that is so amazing and real that we can know you personally and we don't ever have to doubt even when we fail that you have power to forgive, restore. You understand what it feels like, God, when we're lost, helpless, broken, weary, mistreated, enduring unfair circumstances in our lives. And so God, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to look at you. Let everything else fade away even in these moments. Help us to sense you reaching down in your mighty strong arms to carry us. We feel crippled in our faith. And through your words and by your spirit alone, you strengthen our hearts. Rebuild what's broken and lost when we turn away from you. When we're beaten down by all the evil in this world. Let's turn to the one who's overcome, crushed Satan under his feet, and is now seated, reigning in the heavenly places, interceding for us, and ruling all things by your authority. We worship you because you love us. We thank you that we never have to doubt these things. So continue to guide us and lead us forward. As we continue to open things up as a church, guide us in your wisdom. Lord, we want to be your people, shining your great light. We ask your spirit to help us to do that faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here, I invite us to rise. Uh, We'll sing uh, this closing song in response.